My name is Caleb Kubroy, and this is a Nightbeat special report. On the agenda, COVID-19 and the newest radio broadcaster for the Los Angeles Clippers. Stay where you are because it is going to be a very exciting show. But for now, here is your host, Joey Block. Welcome to Nightbeat. I'm Joey Block. Tonight is a special edition, obviously, as we'll be breaking down the latest happening with the coronavirus at campus and around the world. The current count, over 100,000 cases across the globe, almost 3,500 cases nationwide, and 68 American deaths, 178 coronavirus infections in New Jersey with two fatalities, and one case popping up here in New Brunswick. The effect of the coronavirus has taken shape even on our own campus. Yesterday, it was announced a Rutgers professor tested positive for COVID-19. The biomedical engineering professor contracted the virus at a non-Rutgers location in late February and went into self-quarantine. The professor had a limited contact with those affiliated with the university and is said to be recovering quite nicely. This comes after the university canceled classes and decided to move to an online format after spring break. All this has caused a lot of economic downturn at home and abroad, with the stock market tanking nearly 3,000 points on the Dow Jones today. It was announced earlier today that President Trump is recommending gatherings be no more than 10 people. The president also says things may not go back to normal until July or August. At a press conference today, Governor Murphy said New Jerseyans need to stay home this St. Patrick's Day and avoid getting the coronavirus. In the same breath, he ordered all public schools in the state to be shut down and called in FEMA to help with testing. He announced two big testing sites that will be in the state, one up north at Bergen County Community College and another down at the PNC Bank Arts Center in Holmdale. In other news, there was also a shooting here at Rutgers last night between College Ave and Senior Street. In the incident, the non-Ruckers-affiliated victim was shot once by the perpetrator while walking. The victim was brought to the univer- to the hospital and maintained a non-life-threatening injury. Over the course of the hour, we'll be covering all the angles of the coronavirus from how to protect yourself as well as how it's affecting the world. Dr. Merlin will be telling you how you, what you need to know about the virus. I have an interview with a cinema studies professor talking about its toll that it's taking on Hollywood, which we'll be getting to uh, quite shortly. Uh, But also, it was announced last week that the NBA is suspending its season until further notice after Rudy Gobert tested positive for the virus. And we'll be having an exclusive interview on that subject later in the hour as well. Did I even mention that Rutgers Athletics is banning, not only banned all fans, but canceled the seasons altogether, all the Rutgers teams? And that's just a tiny piece of news in all of this as well. So, and we'll also be talking about Rutgers students, uh, how they are currently trying to get reimbursements for housing, possibly, during all this. But for now, we have Dr. Mark Merlin on the phone, who is the CEO of MD1, and is also a practicing physician. Um, Dr. Merlin, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, Joey. Thank you for having me. 
My pleasure. So um, I just want to start with by asking about the origin of the coronavirus or COVID-19. Where did it originally come from and when did it start? Yeah, so this started in Wuhan, China, in what we call a wet market, where people basically were all together. And we believe it was a zoonotic infection. So it jumped from an animal species um, over to humans. And there was a there was a host, and it actually dropped from a host, which was a, a bat, which probably got it from a camel. And But we're not exactly sure. And then it spread in this very condensed area in Wuhan, China, to several people where they started giving it to each other um, because those areas like are, have a lot of people congregated within them. So, yeah, and what I just want to know, point, have you point this out since what is the difference between the two terms coronavirus and COVID-19? Since it seems like a lot of people are getting those confused and were they're actually two different things. Yeah, it's a good question. So there's right now about seven uh, coronaviruses. We call it COVID-19 COVID or novice coronavirus is the seventh one. The, the first four are regular coronaviruses that we see all the time in the hospitals with uh, children and sometimes adults. And they're basically simple colds and cold symptoms. But we don't always tell people that they have a coronavirus. We just say you have a viral syndrome. Then came along something called SARS, and then came something called MERS. And they were more sophisticated, per se, coronaviruses that seemed to be a little more serious. But most people still um, recovered from eventually. And so this is a new type of coronavirus, and basically we call it COVID-19, and 19 just stands for the year 2019 when we first decided to find it. Uh, with the virus, many people have uh, renounced panic and hoarding of supplies, saying that the virus is uh, not that serious, and then some people are overdramatic about it. Should people be worried about the coronavirus? Yeah. I think that this is a scary thing because it's, it's affecting people differently than other viruses have in the past. I tell people, though, that although there's a lot of nervousness and anxiety, I'm 100% confident that we will get through this as a society uh, in, in the United States as well as around the world. But there is some good news. We can also already see people like in China returning to work and the amount of people, the new number of new cases with the virus is diminishing. We also have a virus that, although it's very easy to transmit from one person to another, the mortality rate is very low. Right now, our mortality rate in New Jersey is 2, and the mortality rate in the United States is about 67. So death from the coronavirus is actually quite rare. It seems to affect people mostly in their 80s with a lot of medical conditions. And although it can affect people younger, that's, that's pretty uncommon. So I think what we're worried about is that it goes from one person to another very easily. So we have a lot of fears if it got into nursing homes, like we saw in Seattle, that if this happened you know, in, in other states like New Jersey or New York, then we would start to see more and more cases. We're also afraid of what it's going to do to our workforce, particularly our police, fire, and EMS. We saw this in New, in New York, uh, and we've seen a few other a few other places around the world where one firefighter or one paramedic can easily give it to another. So there's still a lot of uncertainty, and we're starting to see more and more cases. But again, it's not more deaths that we're seeing. It's just more cases. So the numbers are increasing dramatically. But part of that is because we're just starting to test more people. We're just on the tip of testing more people. So we will see more cases uh, initially, because we're going to find a lot of people with minimal symptoms 
um, or who have no symptoms who are testing positive. So you you definitely bring up a lot of those points there. And I, I want to ask you, what do you think is the appropriate reaction to this pandemic? Like what steps should people be taking to protect themselves from the virus as well as what should people be doing to continue on some sense of normalcy? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the, the last thing you mentioned was very important. You know, we need to establish some sort of normalcy because now where we're closing schools and closing major events, we're taking socialization, which is, you know, very important in society. And now we're isolating people and that can cause depression, that can cause a variety of conditions. So we need to deal with this as a group of people, as a society, and not necessarily one-on-one. As far as what to do, I think it's very some simple um, precautions. This is a respiratory droplet infection, which means you typically get it if you're within six feet of somebody and if you are directly sneezing or coughing near them. So it's a respiratory droplet. And again, it's a larger particle, which means if I cough or sneeze and it gets on your hands or near your uh, mouth or your, your nose, then that's when you have the likelihood of transmitting it from one person uh, to another. Also, in general, you should cough into your elbow, not necessarily your hand, so you don't touch somebody. And also, in general, when you wash your hands, which you should do as frequently as possible, the minimum is between interacting with each patient. You should make sure you do it for at least 20 seconds. And then make sure you wash your hands in all four sides. Your finger has four sides to it. Make sure you wash all four sides and then the palm, and then step in between your fingers as well. That, you know, that, that's all really important. Again, make sure you're coughing to your elbow. And the other thing that we do, is, which is uh, being done around the world now, it's been done in China extensively, is called social distancing. And this means keeping yourself at least six feet apart from other people who, who might have the virus. We used to ask people all these questions, like, have you traveled recently to certain countries? And really, those questions are not just so important anymore because now this virus is, is a community virus. It's embedded in the community, so now we're catching it from each other. These are all important things. We know that social distancing tends to diminish the spread of, of the flow. So we know we're going to actually get uh, more people with the virus now, and there's going to be more people showing up in emergency departments. We just don't want them to show up all at once, because we're afraid that if they start to show up all at once, it might outstrip some of our resources. Again, not necessarily because people are going to die from this virus, particularly younger people are not going to. It's very uncommon. So we just worry about the number of people who might need ventilators, what number of people who might be pushed into emergency departments. So this is why when we start to uh, test people, which we're just starting to do now, we don't want them to congregate in, in, in areas. We want them to be spread out to get tested one at a time. Anytime you congregate in one area with a large group of people, you run the risk of, risk of transmitting any infection from one person to another quite easily. So I want to ask you about the state response, in particular in the state of New Jersey here. Uh, Governor Murphy, along with the governors of New York and Connecticut, announced the closing of all restaurants, bars, casinos, movie theaters, gyms, a lot of non-essential businesses. In actually less than an hour, this is going to take effect, and they're not going to open till further notice. Do you think the overall response by the state of New Jersey, as well as New York, has been um, appropriate and effective at um, combating the virus? Right. Well, that question only gets answered in the weeks to come to see if the amount of uh, patients gets diminished. I think this is an important strategy that the Governor Murphy has outlined, um, as well as the governors for other states as well. 
the social distancing, because that's what we know will diminish the spread of the virus. I think this is a, I think it's actually an important strategy when we have well, when we've seen what's happening in Italy where the cases have started to surge. You know, we'll know next week and the week after how successful this strategy is, but I think it's really important uh, to at least uh, at least implement it and see what happens. You know, if we cancel school and we cancel events and everybody unfortunately congregates into bars, they're still cross contaminating each other in a variety of ways. So, you know, that's what we really worry about. And it's not necessarily the people in bars who are, in, you know, maybe in their 20s or 30s who are cross-contaminating. It's the fact that they can get sick, go home to their, you know, their grandparents, and then give their grandparents uh, the novel coronavirus, and then they have a higher probability of a, a bad outcome. So, you know, this, there's lots of different things to think of. But this is all a balance, right? It's a balance between uh, socialization of people as a balance between trying to stop a virus that's spreading extremely quickly from one group to another. And I worry about certain groups. Like I said, I worry about people who are in their 80s who seem to have the highest risk of uh, a bad outcome. And I worry about the people on our front lines. You know, if they get exposed to somebody like a, a fire department, which, you know, a, a tour could stay together for 24 hours. If one gets sick or exposed and the next person gets sick, that can easily take out, you know, unfortunately, you know, at least quarantine uh, huge amounts of uh, firefighters. And, and, you know, that's pretty serious. We, we don't want, you know, we don't want that to happen. So I want to ask you about the national response to this as well. President Trump at a press conference today, actually earlier this afternoon, that the CDC uh, and him more or less are suggesting that there shouldn't be gatherings of 10 or more people. And the administration also put travel restrictions on a lot of countries uh, from Europe. Do you think this is uh, still more to be done? Do you think this is effective? Where do you stand on that? Well, I think that, you know, we have to model our behavior after other countries, which are starting to do, which are, which are doing things pretty well. South Korea tested a lot of people. Um, China now has the downslope of the virus and people, and they took a whole lot of people out of work, and they seem to then get a, less, a lot less people with the virus. So it worked for them. And because this novel coronavirus is new to us, we just don't exactly know what the right answer is. Is the magic number 10 or 15? You know, anytime you keep people a little bit away from each other, six feet or more, you know, we seem to have less contamination, less spread of this virus. It's a strategy where we don't have previous viruses to compare to, but it's a strategy that seems to be have worked in other countries, so it seems to be important. You know, if we separate out people by water or by, you know, uh, other countries and don't allow them to travel uh, so much together, or more importantly, congregate in airports, right, or congregate, you know, on, on, on planes, it seems to be a strategy that makes sense. But you know, we'll know for sure in the next few weeks if that strategy works. I tend to think it's going to. I tend to think, you know, I, I'm a positive person, and I tend to think that we're going to go over this. There's a lot of a lot of people, understandably, very anxious, but we're going to get over this. You know, we're going to have life back to normal, um, I predict, you know, in the not-too-distant future. Um, but there's a lot of scary stuff out there, and some of it is not accurate um, that's being uh, portrayed to people. Some of it, you know, is real. So we need to move forward uh, based upon facts. Something we do is uh, because there's so many questions being asked, literally get thousands of questions now a day, 
is we have um, a YouTube channel called MD1, the number one program. And uh, on YouTube, we put out lots of, we put out videos. We just taped seven of them. And we're going to try and put out something every single day to talk about this virus as it changes, you know, on, on a regular basis for us in the United States. And nobody likes to be, nobody likes to stay at home. Nobody likes to be bored. Nobody likes not to go out. But I think that we need to start thinking that this is a really strange time. Again, I'm pretty hopeful. We have a long history of coronaviruses um, diminishing in the community for, for two big reasons. One is when it gets warm outside, the number of coronaviruses tends to go down. So although it's true that we don't know if that will happen with this coronavirus, we have other coronaviruses where that does happen. Plus, when the weather gets warm, people tend to be outside more and don't cross-contaminate each other in college dorms and in movie theaters and, 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 you know, and, and all those types of places. Um, so, you know, those are just really important things. We'll come back, you know, next season. I don't know the answer to that. But we're going to develop what's called herd immunity, which basically means we're going to build up antibodies. And that, you know, know yet. Or may come back in a much form symptom. Uh, symptoms severe, but it, it, it happens. Yeah, Dr. Merlin, um, you. I know one thing I want to mention before I let you go is the fact that you said this. You don't think this is going to last very long. What? When do you think this is going to end? Well, I think it depends upon a couple of factors. It depends upon number one, um, when the number of cases stop doubling. Number two, it depends upon the weather outside. Number three, it depends upon the amount of social distancing that we do uh, with people. Number four, it really depends upon what you know, the, the geography of where people are in the country. And number five, it depends, you know, on us figuring stuff out like good surveillance, which we tend to do by good, uh, good testing on patients to see what the pockets are of larger cases throughout the United States. And it depends, you know, how frequently people listen to social and if they're following the rules and if they're doing good hand washing and following some of the general advice that, that we give to them. I think, uh, you know, I think in, we're going to start to see numbers to over the next few weeks. Um, I can't say that. I know that for sure. Again, there's all those variables that, um, there's all those variables which you need to take into consideration. Dr. Mark Merlin, uh, CEO of MD1, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Tune into our YouTube channel, md1program.org. All right. We'll have to give it a listen as well as a watch. Thank you. Uh, now we're going to turn a little bit more over to the Rutgers side of things here. Rutgers students are currently asking questions about how this is going to affect their wallet. And by that, I mean they're trying to get housing the, their housing fees back after the university has pretty much moved classes uh, online for the next couple of weeks and may possibly do it for the rest of the semester. What does that mean for Rutgers students? Well, we're going to ask someone who might know a little bit about that, who's been looking into that a little bit. It is MyCentralJersey.com reporter, Bob Macon. Bob, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. So what's the latest in your reporting on the university's plans to reimburse housing? Is there any new developments? The university doesn't have any plans to reimburse. Um, they aren't even thinking about it right now. 
from what I've been told, they're concentrating on, first and foremost, the public safety of everyone in the Rutgers community, and secondly, the uh, remote instruction that they're going to be providing, uh, you know, when the students return from spring break, those two weeks after the students return from spring break, they're between now and, and whenever they decide to come back or not to come back, that's when they're going to decide whether or not to do any kind of credit. I don't think, I, and I'm right now I'm just speculating based on what the chatter is that, uh, you know, I guess my article created. Um, and that is that it most likely won't be a reimbursement for this semester. It would more likely be a credit for next semester if it happens at all. So you said it would be possibly a credit for next semester. Now, I want to go a little more into that here. If Let's say you're a graduating senior and this was your final year and you're graduating. You're not looking to go to grad school. What do you think they're going to have to do then? If- I don't. I. It's too soon to say. But the, you bring up an extremely good point is, you know, I think a lot of people who were saying on social media that it would most likely be a credit didn't take that into account. So, you know, it, it's really hard to say because at this point there's been no policy determined as, you know, as far as the financial impact on the students missing that two weeks of room board. You know, it just it's it's uh, it's why the article was brought up is because someone, you know, basically was saying on Facebook, hey, are we going to get reimbursed for missing, you know, these two weeks of room and board? And I went to my editor and said, hey, are they going to get reimbursed for missing these two weeks of room and board? He's like, make it so, you know, do an article. And so. You know, the article led to more chatter, but at this point, that's all it is, because the university is too focused on other things to even think about that financial impact, you know? And that's understandable, because there's a threat, obviously, that you were just talking about. So, I mean, you know, when you look at the bigger picture, like the financial impact that this thing this disease is having on our economy, you know, the, the 850 or so dollars that this impacts each student, you know, isn't really comparable to that bigger financial impact or more importantly than that, everyone's public health and safety. Yeah. You bring up uh, a lot of interesting points on that and i want to go a little bit since you're also more or less the your beat is basically Rutgers university so i want to ask you about um ruckers as a whole how do you think they've handled their response to the coronavirus as well as anybody else has i mean you know i think there was a um i guess you would call it an article that was posted, I saw it on Yahoo, and it's extremely disturbing. It was Italy advising the United States how to deal with this thing and pointing out how we're failing miserably. 
And since that article came out, I've noticed like a turnaround. I noticed that we're starting to do the things that we need to do to address it. And I think Rutgers has has done basically what everybody else has done up to that point. And, you know, what they're going to do now, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, I checked the uh, coronavirus webpage just about every 15 minutes to see what they're going to update. But I, I don't think that Rutgers has, you know, done anything significantly ahead of the curve or behind the curve in dealing with this, you know, disaster. So based on your reporting and just your observations, does it seem at all likely the university will close down? I know you're saying you aren't sure, but do you think yeah, there's... I think it's very likely that they'll close down for the rest of the semester. Just on, based on what like the CDC has said that you should have no large public events with more than 50 people until I think it's like around May 8th. And, you know, the graduation at Rutgers, I believe, is May 17th. So, I mean, aren't classes over by May 8th? You know, so, I mean, if, if you're going by that CDC advisory, I don't even think it's an advisory anymore. I think it's like almost, you know, I think it's an advisory, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if it becomes a ruling. And it becomes like, you know, law or regulation that you can't uh, hold events of more than 50 people. And in fact, I think the governor today said that, that like you cannot hold events of more than 50 people. Well, if you look in some Rutgers classrooms, there's 250 people in those classrooms. So, so there you go. It's, it's basically, you know, just pragmatically looking at the math of it all and the size and scope of Rutgers University. And, you, I mean, common sense tells you, not that anybody has gone on the record with that or there's been any, any kind of policy established, common sense would dictate that that remote instruction is going to be extended, whether it will be extended the entire semester I don't know, but based on the CDC guidelines, I don't. I think it's going to be extended beyond the two weeks. But no one has said that for sure. That's just me speculating. And so I want to ask you one final question before I let you go about the university. And a lot of people that are still here that couldn't necessarily leave are international students. Now, if the university decides mm -hmm. to stay online for the rest of the semester— do these international students get to stay here? I mean, what what do they get to do considering a lot of them can't go back to their home countries like Italy, for example, yeah. with rising infections? Yeah, sure. Well, and not only that, but, uh, you know, uh, Trump has um, is on the verge of, of closing all the airports. I mean, we're not going to be able to, we're not going to, He, I believe we're not allowed to fly internationally. And, you know, there may be a chance that we're not even allowed to fly domestically, given the mess that was in the airport yesterday with all those people returning from Europe. Um, the international students 
uh, are still, I believe the international students are doing remote instruction like everybody else so, because there's no classrooms to go to right now. So I'm sure they're going to be allowed to stay in their dorms. I mean, I can't imagine the uproar <laughs> that would result from sending them back home if there was a threat. I mean, they sent, they sent the students home because there was a threat on the campus of, you know, the social distancing threat. So they sent them home so that they could, you know, stay within their homes, hopefully in safety, and do the remote instruction. You know, once that socially distance, that social distancing threat is gone because the other students are home, then the international students shouldn't be threatened in in the the, the residence they're staying in. They should be able to stay there just fine doing remote instruction as long as it's going to be going on. So I think they're, I think they're going to be okay um, as far as, you know, being able to stay at Rutgers and, and doing instruction, remote instruction. But again, that's just me speculating because, you know, there is a huge mystery with this whole thing. I mean, we report on this thing every day, all day long, you know, I'm, sometimes seven days a week. And we're getting, you know, a lot of, like, knowledge about, you know, what's going on with this thing. And, you know, from all indications, um, it's going to be a little while longer before things go back to normal. And you were discussing that before with your, your guests. In the big picture, it won't seem like that long a time, but as far as the rest of the semester goes, it probably will be. No, my Jersey Central Jersey reporter, uh, Bob Macon, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And stay safe. Same to you. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, our own WRSU News reporter, Chris Sakonis has an exclusive interview with a radio broadcaster for the Los Angeles Clippers and will be getting his reaction to the suspension of the NBA season. That's all coming your way right here on Nightbeat. Fan of the WRSU crew, but you missed today's show? Don't sweat it, we've got you covered. WRSU Sports is now available on Spotify. Catch every single episode of the WRSU crew on the airwaves from 6 to 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday and 4 to 6 p.m. on Friday, as well as 24-7 streaming on Spotify. We'll bring you every second of your favorite sports talk with the best hosts in town. Look up the WRSU crew on Spotify today and make sure to give us a follow. Welcome back to Nightbeat. I'm Chris Akonis. As the coronavirus pandemic sweeps through the United States, every aspect of our daily lives has been impacted. Sports are no exception. After Utah Jazz center Rudy Gobert tested positive for the disease last Tuesday, the NBA immediately announced the suspension of their season. Every other league followed suit, and within a span of 24 hours, the entire sports world ground to a halt. Here now to give us some insight on the impact the virus has had on pro sports and what fans can expect is Noah Eagle, who was in his first season as play-by-play announcer for the L.A. Clippers. Noah, thanks for coming on. Hey, you got it, Chris. You got it. 
as we all know, it initially looked as if the NBA would continue playing behind closed doors during the pandemic. That was certainly the plan that teams were rolling out one by one. But after Gobert tested positive for the virus, the league almost immediately suspended operations. So based on what you can sort of gather being around the league every day, what do you think went into this decision? I think that it's the nature of the virus altogether. The fact that it is incredibly uh, easy to spread. And we saw that once one player tested positive, it became apparent then another and another have already tested positive. And I think just the idea of what we've seen overseas, not just in America, but we've had a blueprint of how this goes overseas. We said overall, I think we need to get ahead of it. So the NBA, I commend them. I think they did the absolute correct thing. And they kind of created the domino effect of the other leagues and the other sports to say, you know what, we need to do the same, which is to, at very minimum, suspend play for the time being. And who knows what the future has in store. But uh, I think they did the right thing because right now the idea is we need to try to flatten the curve. We've heard that a lot. And keep it as best in check as possible. And so that's keeping it away from uh, elderly people and keeping it away from people who are more at risk. And the best way of doing that is to try to take the break, allow everybody to kind of uh, separate themselves from one another, and then go forward from there once the time is right. So I'd say the NBA did the right thing. The timing made sense. And uh, I'd say when they look back on it and when people look back on it, they'll look back on it fondly in the way that they handled it. And, you know, the outbreak was a lot stronger in Europe ahead of time compared to the United States. And the Champions League didn't really shut down until now. Up until this point, they were playing empty stadium games, closed-door games, much as the NBA had planned to. But did you have any sense that, you know, maybe not anyone telling you explicitly, but did you get a feeling that there was a possibility that the league could suspend play altogether? Uh, not necessarily, no. I hadn't heard anything ahead of time, but I will say this. I think we all sense at the very least, that if a player got it, things were going to change. And that's exactly what happened. We saw, to your point, that there were plenty of soccer players in several leagues that were starting to pop up with having tested positive for the virus. And, and that changed people's thought process on, on how things should be handled because you're in such close contact with everybody. And so then think about it this way. If you're in close contact with the people you're playing against, then you're going home, you're in close contact with the people that you're living with or you're near or you run into from a day-to-day -day just doing your normal routine. So that's, I would say, what went into the, the process of thinking about what the next move would be is, well, it's X to Y to Z. How can we keep it from just staying at X? And, and that's what all these leagues have done. How are teams, you know, from a marketing perspective and a social media perspective, how are teams sort of interacting with their fans when they have such an extended break of play and what's supposed to be, you know, the end of the regular season? Yeah, it's hard. I just think that each team is trying to figure it out as we go. This is an unprecedented time. This is something that's never happened before. I was, I remember just before it happened, just before the, the suspension of the season came about, I was thinking how similar this was to the movie Space Jam, where there's almost this unknown entity that's affecting the players. And if you remember in the movie, Charles Barkley and Larry Johnson and Muggsy Bogues and Patrick Ewing, and I'm trying to think who the, the final player was, but it was, oh, Sean Bradley, that's who it was. So you had those five different players, 
and their talent was taken away by aliens. So it was a, they, nobody could see it. It was an invisible threat to these players. And what ended up happening was the commissioner, who was played by an actor in the movie, but the commissioner decided we're not playing any more basketball until we figure out what's wrong. It's kind of the case here. And so I don't know if there's, there's a, a blueprint for these teams or anybody to, to know what to do next. I think each team is handling it in their own respective ways. And for the time being, at least, the NBA is giving guidelines of here's what you can and can't do for the players and for the organizations and stuff like that. But as for the organizations themselves, the franchises and how they interact with their fans, I, I couldn't tell you. That's, that's pretty much up to them. And in the world of college sports, we saw NCAA tournaments and seasons, in some cases, being canceled outright. And, you know, the big topic of debate is how does the NCAA handle that issue of giving eligibility for players who either, in the case of lacrosse or baseball, miss their seasons altogether, or in the case of basketball and wrestling, missing that chance at postseason success. So I want to get your opinion on this. How do you think the NCAA should handle that issue? It's hard. It's definitely hard from the winter sport perspective because they at least played a full season. So it's much easier, I would say, to argue for those playing spring sports, lacrosse and baseball, as you mentioned. Uh, all, all of those types of sports, I would be shocked if the NCAA does not give another year of eligibility, just considering those kids, they lost pretty much, I know lacrosse had, what, three weeks? or so in about three games into the season that's not close to a full season that's still i think enough that you could have registered it for the year so the way i look at it is they should be given another year but the winter sports is tough they played a full regular season some of them played at least half of a conference tournament i'm not sure what's going to happen there i would love to give the kids another chance because most of them won't ever get that opportunity again at the next level there are only a handful of let's say basketball players that ascend to the NBA or WNBA. And and you look at some of the names of the seniors that are going to be graduating this year that are not going to have that chance to potentially play for a championship. And it's sad. And it it really is considering some of the careers they had, it really is a, a brutal blow and a brutal way to end a career. But I'm not sure what the, the proper protocol is at the end of the day as well, because you've got an influx of freshmen coming in, You can only have so many people on the team at once, so many scholarships to give at once. So I'm not sure. I I really wish I could give you a distinct answer, but I I would say mine is I don't know. And the other issue that we've noticed, and this has especially been prominent with the NBA, the virus has had an effect on much more than just players, coaches, and fans. Thousands of workers for each team and each arena depend on these games for their livelihood. So with that gone, you know, how are different teams sort of filling that void and doing their best to sort of help them make ends meet? Listen, I can tell you that at least a, a handful that I've seen, and I would be shocked if it isn't at least 99%, if not every team, is making sure that their workers and their uh, event payment workers, basically, let's call them, those who get paid by the event are covered during this type of pandemic. and that was the right thing to do. We've seen players that have stepped forward and donated uh, upwards of $100,000, $500,000, maybe even a million, depending on the player, just to, 
trying to clear the salaries of those workers. So, again, that's a case-by-case basis, but I would say the vast majority are doing the right thing here. And getting back to, you know, the players themselves, what restrictions have been placed on player activities during a hiatus? You know, how are players sort of staying in midseason shape while they wait for the season to potentially resume? Uh, Yeah, it's all case by case. The NBA yesterday allowed players to travel out of their market, which is a, a huge plus. So they can, if let's say they don't necessarily live in the market they play, they don't live there year round and their families elsewhere, they can go rejoin their families which is uh, definitely a positive. As for the training, they're still allowed to go to the facilities, but they can't practice as a whole. It needs to be basically singular training to stay in shape and everything. A lot of these players, uh, they have their own fitness areas in their own homes and everything. So I would just say it's going to depend on the person, depend on the player and what they decide to do. But um, this is, again, it's unprecedented. It's, something that we haven't seen before. So it's a lot of trial and error as we go along. Final question. Part of what makes this suspension so difficult for fans in the uncertain timeframe of the pandemic, and the NBA said that they'll be suspended for a minimum of 30 days, although that could and in all likelihood will go on for longer. Do you, when do you personally think, in your own opinion, I'm not asking for any inside information here, when do you personally think the league will be coming back roughly? Do you think that there's a chance that we come back in a month, month and a half, or are we looking at a much longer hiatus? You know, I keep going back and forth on this, Chris, uh, of when I think things might return. And then every time I feel like, okay, maybe it'll be this, then something else comes along. And maybe I feel like, oh, it'll be, no, something else. So I have no idea. I, I truly can't give a good hypothesis here because, I just don't know, and none of us truly do, because we, we're not sure. We're not in the middle of it. We're not uh, making the decisions here. And so uh, I wish I could give you a, a better answer than that. But for now, I'd say I'm just going to be patient and hope that it's sooner rather than later. Noah, thanks for the time. Really appreciate it. You got it, Chris. All right, have a good one. All right, man. That was Noah Eagle, radio voice of the L.A. Clippers. Coming up, Joey and I will break this issue down more as the sports world continues to stay suspended due to the coronavirus pandemic. You're listening to Nightbeat on 88.7 FM and online at WRCU.org. Ladies and gentlemen, very deep, deep bass of Graham Maybe. This is Graham Maybe, bassist extraordinaire. I've played with Shania Twain. But believe me, folks, it can't compare to an evening with Scott Einhorn. Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. on WRSU-FM in New Brunswick. Welcome back to Nightbeat. I'm Joey Block. Uh, If you've just been tuning in, we've been talking a lot about the coronavirus and how it's been affecting our daily lives. We had Dr. Mark Merlin come on and talk about the effects of the virus. And then we had our own Chris Sikonis just finish up an interview with No Eagle to talk about how it's affected the sports world. Now, I have Chris Sikonis. He's going to be talking a little bit about this, but I just want to drop some news here that's been going on in the last hour. Uh, Saturday Night Live has just suspended production because of the coronavirus. It was originally put on hiatus until March 28th. 
but it has been announced in the last hour. It will not be coming back to the air anytime soon. It's unclear when it will return. There were only six episodes left of the season, but they were not able to um, be able to come back on that one. And the person who was going to be hosting the next one was John Krenzinski, actually. He, and it was going to be the music guest of Dua Lipa. Uh, so we'll have you any more updates for you when we get them. And that just joins a lot of other late night shows. But back with me now to talk more about the sports side of things is our own WRSU news reporter, Chris Akonis. Chris, thank you so much for coming back. Appreciate it, Joey. Glad to be on. So I want to talk to you about the interview. Obviously, uh, there were a lot of good things that were discussed there. But what in your mind was the big takeaway? The big takeaway for me is really the fact that we don't know when anything is coming back. Like, we have, like, our best guesses. Like, you know, the NBA says they're suspending for a minimum of 30 days. NHL hopes to resume practices in, like, two weeks, I believe, is the time frame given. But it could be way longer than that. They might just go straight into the playoffs. They might just, in some cases, cancel the season altogether if it really stretches into July and August, which... You know, some national leaders tend to think that it could take that long to get this really under control. They could also start earlier than that, but not have any fans and really try to limit possible transmission there. There's a lot of unknowns here, and I think that's part of what makes this such a fluid and, for sports fans, a very difficult situation. Yeah, and I know No Eagle even pointed out that he doesn't even know when it's coming back, and he's a guy who follows it. He Hall's play-by-play, and he doesn't even know what that means. And also, you asked him about how to interact with fans, and he started talking a lot about social media. Do you think this is going to be enough for the players as well as play-by-play broadcasters like him? Well, it's a difficult situation for the players for a couple of reasons. One, they go from being you know in the middle of the season, and in the case of the NBA and the NHL, like, on the brink of going to the playoffs and and being in the most intense competition of the year to all of a sudden they're more or less in off-season mode. There are no practices, at least not yet. Uh, whatever practice or workouts they do is more or less on their own or in very small groups, but certainly nothing team-sanctioned. And that is, I think, going from 100 to zero and in the case of possibly coming back, back to 100, it's a very weird position for them to be in. From the social media aspect, I don't really know how much of an effect, like, like they'll definitely be acting on social media. I know some players, like Jonathan Kubo, for example, is you know, pledging part of his salary to arena workers that will be out of work during the uh, shutdown of the league and of the arena. So, like, a lot of players are stepping up on the philanthropy side of things. But in terms of, you know, keeping the fan base engaged, it's really hard to do that because we don't know when they're coming back. It could be three weeks to a month. It could be, you know, we could be playing NBA Finals in August when it's usually the first week of June. Like, there are so many uncertain factors here, so many different aspects of play that it's very difficult to say definitively what exactly is going to go on. And I also want to talk about a little bit of the college side of things. You touched that upon that with him. He, in his mind, was saying that spring players should get another chance. They should be eligible for another year at the NCAA tournament. While he said for winter sports like basketball, uh, not so much. I mean, what, what did you make of his response to that? 
Well, in the absence of an actual March Madness tournament and spring sports at the college level, uh, the main topic of discussion has turned to, do you give those players an extra year of eligibility? And I think Noah summed this up really well. In the case of baseball and lacrosse, you know, it's very easy to say, all right, you only play like three games in what's supposed to be a 14-game lacrosse season plus the tournament, which obviously isn't going to happen. In that case, you know, you, you, it's very easy to say, all right, we'll give you an extra year of eligibility. It's kind of like a medical red shirt where if a guy gets hurt, they give him an extra year of eligibility. So that aspect, I feel like it's a no-brainer. I think the NCAA is going to announce something on that fairly soon. As for winter sports, it's a lot more complicated because, you know, the regular season for wrestling and basketball were both pretty much done. And you can say the same for hockey, even though it doesn't affect Rutgers directly. Um, so, like, in the case of, like, Rutgers basketball, for instance, like, you know, they didn't play in the conference tournament. And they're obviously not going to play in the NCAA tournament, but they had a full season in. And, you know, I go back to the medical redshirt thing. If someone, you know, gets seriously hurt, in the last game of the regular season, they're not really eligible for a medical retro because they played the whole year. Now, I can't say for sure that the NCAA won't give them any extra eligibility because it's such an extraordinary circumstance. I mean, we're talking about a once-in-the-century pandemic here, but at the same time, I don't know where the NCAA is going to go here. I think they're probably going to give it to spring athletes, but like Noah said, it's a much harder case and much more uncertain case in terms of basketball, wrestling, hockey, and so on. My final question for you here is how did Noah say he was doing? Since as a player, I play broadcaster, particularly in basketball, that's that's your life and that's your bread and butter. But now he's not doing that. How is he coping with it? Well, from what he could tell me, it's really he's really in no different of a situation than the average fan. You know, obviously it's his profession, so it's a little bit different. But from what I could gather from him is, you know, it's really a wait-and-see kind of approach, and that's unfortunately the case for anyone who you know, watches or is involved with professional or college sports right now. It's just a wait-and-see kind of a thing to see you know, how long it takes for things to go back to normal. And like I said, there are so many variables at play between you know, what kind of restriction, restrictions local governments place, what kind of you know, restrictions leagues place, like will they start playing earlier without fans or later with fans. There, there are so many uncertain factors here. So I think that's what makes it the most difficult if you are a fan or, in his case, work for a league or a team, is just the uncertainty of not knowing when things are going to get back to normal. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see how that one plays out. WRSU News Chris uh, reporter Chris Sakonis, thank you so much for uh, doing that interview and giving us all this great insight. I really appreciate it. Sure thing, Joe. All right. Now we're going to head more into how this is affecting Hollywood. I had the opportunity to sit down with cinema studies professor and head of the New Jersey film festival, Albert Nydren to tell us what's happening in Hollywood, how they're reacting and what it means for what we love watching on the screen going forward. Here's a little bit of it. NJ Film Festival director and cinema studies professor Albert Nigren, thank you so much for taking time to talk to with me. Sure, nice to nice to see you, or at least hear you. <laughs> yeah, the magic of radio there. So I want to start by talking about some news that just came out. Um, governor Murphy, along with Governor Cuomo from New York and the governor of Connecticut, have decided to close a lot of public venues, including 
movie theaters. Uh, with that said, how is this going to affect the box office? Box office is going to take a hit, but if there's any time, I think, where not having the theaters open just after the Oscars is usually the slowest time for the movie industry. But still, they'll take a huge hit. And like many of the industries, many entertainment industries, sports industries, you name it, restaurants, all these will take a hit. So for sure. So a lot of movies have decided to push back their release dates, including Mulan, the live action version. Is Do you see this happening with other films that are coming? Yeah, the, the James Bond movie was pushed back, too. Yeah, that's correct. So with that and said, all those films, do you see this being a wide movement of films and that get pushed back? And if so, how long do you think this will span for? I don't know. Nobody knows what will happen how the virus will manifest itself in this country. And I think since we had such a slow start tackling the problem, you know, uh, President Trump called it a hoax initially, and that was just only two weeks ago, um, and now he's singing a different tune. I think we should have had testing in place a good two months. And, you know, once it started in China, there should have been movement on preventing anything happening here. So, in China, with their draconian measures, it seems like things are coming back to normal after almost three months of major shutdown. So how long it will happen here, it's hard to tell. Um, I don't think that it will. I'm hoping it won't be as long as that, but I'm not that optimistic either. You mentioned China, and a lot of the film industry now is based on foreign films, especially with the fact that Parasite one best picture, which was the first of its kind to do so. How is this going to affect uh, getting foreign films out there? Is there going to be, is it going to be more, do you think, in your opinion, is it going to be more of an online-based type of thing of how Americans can get that content? Or do you just think Americans are not going to be able to access this content until this virus uh, slows down? Well, I think the, the online setup is, of course, going to be revved into high gear, since there's going to be a need for industry, the industry to make some money. Um, and, you know, in general, Parasite was the exception rather than the norm. There's not that many international films that are playing on multiplex screens. Um, that, that, to me, it, it really should be uh, the case where we see more international films. But since 9-11, there's a marked drop-off on international films making it to any screens. Um, you know, art house cinemas started to close at around that time, too. So there's less and less international movies in general. And I really see Parasite as an exception rather than the norm. So I want to talk a little bit more about actors in Hollywood. As you probably know, Tom Hanks and his wife tested positive for COVID-19 last week while they were filming a biopic about the life of Elvis in Australia is this going to affect the production of films currently in the process of filming? Yes, absolutely. And I don't think it's limited to just the actors, I think. Since crew members work very closely to one another and there's a lot of handling of uh, material and, and equipment that there's probably going to be transmission that's already happened. It's just the fact that testing has been so slow. We don't really know who has this thing. So as a fact, we don't know that there's probably going to be a spread. And I think that it's definitely going to impact not only the um, projection of films and the rolling out of films, but also the production of films. And I think that there'll be a 
a huge lag in any production. How long the lag will be, I don't know. I'm hoping shorter, sooner rather than later, they get back up and running. But again, we don't know. Film is very much a collaborative effort and in-person effort. Is there any way to possibly do it virtually or is that completely out of the question? Well, I don't know. I'm sure somebody will come up with that idea, whether it will be consumable by a a large audience. That's another story. But, you know, whenever there's some kind of crisis like this, I'm amazed at how many things, positive things can come out of it from a creative standpoint. But we won't really feel the impact of that until much later. How, How can you see the film industry in this time of social distancing still continuing on? Since social distancing is the norm now, it seems, how do you see it continuing on? Is there a way we can do other things like besides production? Is there any way it can still trickle on? I think, you know, the fact what you pointed out about streaming, you're going to see the rollout of other movies that there's so many movies that are in the can, but that haven't been rolled out yet, that they have a, a backlog of work that they probably can roll out in the interim while they're getting back on their feet and starting to roll, ramp up production again. So uh, I'm sure there's some films that you'll see that will be rolled out in the interim that perhaps have been pushed back or maybe they were considering not screening them because there's a lot of movies that are made and we only get to see the tip of the iceberg at the movie theaters. Do you think this is going to be the moment where lost films or things that we haven't seen before get rolled out in a search for content? Well, you know, the most watched film uh, in the last week has been Steven Soderbergh's Contagion, which was made in 2011. That's a perfect example of what you just mentioned, that we're going to see other films that are somehow keyed in to this crisis. And, you know, they also just recently released uh, Stephen King's The Stand, which is, you know, a novel about uh, a virus that knocks out half of the populace and is a fight with the devil. And, you know, we're going to see a lot of that kind of stuff. I don't know what other movies will be brought out from the from the vault, but I, I, I know that the industry will find a way to keep itself viable. Now, since at uh, least try to. And since a lot of films are also indie films that don't have a wide budget around them, do you think they're going to be most affected by this or do you think the virus doesn't discriminate? Well, I'll tell you. Um, A number of film festivals in the state of New Jersey have shut down because they were going to take place this month and next month. Our international film festival is scheduled to start at the end of May and the beginning of June, and I'm kind of wondering what's going to happen. Am I going to push all that back into the fall like a lot of these other movies um, are getting pushed back? So the indie films rely on getting their films out through film festivals, and if there's no place to show the stuff, then, of course, that's going to really impact on them from a financial and from a, you know, just from a purely viewing point of view. You know, nobody's going to get to see these movies. Do you think new content will arise based on the coronavirus in years to come in film? Oh, absolutely. You know, you can see the movies happening. I mean, that movie, did you ever get to see Contagion? That came from another a virus that was SARS. And so, you know, there there's always going to be somebody taking advantage of a crisis. Uh, I remember flight, the flight 19. I can't remember the name of flight. What was the name of the plane that went down in Shanksville? Well, they made a movie about that, right? So there's always going to be somebody trying to take advantage of these crises to, you know, to make money off of them and to, 
to bring to light some subject matter that they think is is compelling. And you mentioned that a lot of filmmakers make films to bring light to something. And a lot of people say that media as a whole, particularly film, has kind of an obligation to bring to light these things, whether it's telling people a truth or showing them as well as comforting them in a time where things seem so uncertain. And with film, you know, right now with production being kind of halted and release dates, how can filmmakers still connect with audiences in a way that they can't now? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think social media is a, a really great way, and you see how some of these famous actors um, have solicited contributions from young people and other people to sing or perform to entertain us. So I think you're already seeing that taking place. You, you know, these folks in Italy are all singing outside of their windows and everybody's joining in, that there will be a way for the arts, maybe not cinema, but the arts to find a way to continue entertaining the masses. Now, we talked a lot about how production and distribution are being impacted by this. Uh, can you see post-production possibly still happening uh, since a lot of it is not so much having to deal with social distancing? I don't know. That's a. I don't think so. I mean, I, I just saw on TV that they're now suggesting that you don't interact with more than 10 people. You know, it's gone from 500 to 250 to 50 and now it's down to 10. So I don't know. I think when you're working on a production, there's usually at least 10 people working on a scene. Um, so unless it's a real low, low, low budget kind of a movie, uh, and even and those are not the types that are going to get mass distribution. So I, I, I think everything is going to be put to a standstill. And if people actually follow the self-quarantining that is kind of necessary, that will speed up the process down the road. If people kind of cheat and spread the virus and don't feel like it's an issue, uh, then we'll be in for the long haul. I've talked about post-production, pre-production, which involves a lot of script writing. Uh, some people have a more collaborative process on that. Others do not. Do you see a lot of writers just pretty much sitting at home on their computers typing up stuff, or do you think that's Absolutely. also going to be halted? That's what I've been doing the last few days. I've been video recording my lectures for the class that you're in, and creative people are always working. I don't think that's going to go away. I think getting the financing together, and that can be done over the telephone, and there's you, know, you can do it using um, meetings like Zoom. So there's ways to be able to collaborate. But physically making something where you have to have hands-on equipment is much more problematic, and that's going to take a while uh, before people can actively do that. So, so I think there's going to be a lot of pre-production. I don't see that going away. Um, but it's really going to be there's going to be a glut of projects wanting to squeeze through, and I don't think we're going to get all of them being released at the same time. And that's going to be one of the issues that uh, the entertainment industry is going to have to deal with because everybody postponing to the fall. There's going to be so much competition to do all of these things that they will they all will suffer as a result. Maybe the the really big uh, big name projects will still do okay, but the fledgling films and projects will suffer greatly. I have a feeling. So my final question is: I want to ask you, as you mentioned, class is in terms of the classes you teach. How are you doing in terms of adapting? your classes, a lot of them are you're watching a film and you're discussing it with students. How are you planning on adapting 
in light of not really being able to have them in person? I've recorded my lectures, and I'm going to be posting them or emailing them to students. They'll be on a private YouTube links, and you guys will watch them. And then I've set up Zoom meetings where we'll all be able to talk about them together. So the only difference will be that it's not as live. You see something and you want to comment on it at that moment, you're going to have to write down your question and then ask it when we meet together. So it's going to be a little disjointed, but I'm actually surprised that usually when I give you my lecture anyway, there isn't that much questioning in the middle of it. It usually takes place at the end. So it's not going to be that much different. The only difference is that you're not going to see me in the flesh. You're going to see uh, uh, me talking next to um, uh, the projection of the film. I mean, I, my my close-up is right next to the television screen, and I'm running through the movie just like I would with us in class. It's just not going to be on the big screen, and it's not going to be live. That's going to be the main difference. New Jersey Film Festival head as well as Cinema Studies professor Albert Nigren. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Joey. Stay safe. My thanks to Albert Nigren, who is a professor of cinema studies and a head of the NJ Film Festival and a professor I was lucky enough to have. Uh, we had a lot of breaking news things just come in here in the last few minutes. Uh, Ohio, after a lot of dispute of whether they will have a primary or not tomorrow, they have decided they will have the primary that will be taking place as expected. Uh, the governor has announced that officially. And that will be taking place. Also, in other election news, Joe Biden has just won the state of Washington that was out there for a week and people weren't so sure. It looked like Bernie Sanders was in the lead there. But we can now confirm, according to The New York Times, that Joe Biden is just narrowly edging Bernie Sanders out there. Um, and the it was too close to call after the race. But now we can, can confirm it there. Uh, so yeah, a lot of so on there. And I'm going to get some breaking news reaction here. With me now is Assistant News Director Caleb Kubray. Caleb, thank you so much for uh, coming on the program. Joey Block, always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So what is your reaction to the last pieces of news here, as well as everything that's been just transpiring the last hour and the last few days? It's kind of crazy. You know, it's very funny that you were talking to, uh, I believe, your your old professor uh, who is the director of the NJ Film Festival because it does feel like a movie. It really does feel like something that is just unreal that you read about in a book or, or you watch um, on TV. Uh, your professor actually mentioned Contagion, which was a movie uh, my family and I uh, watched a little bit of, um, I think, just yesterday or two days ago. Because it just doesn't feel real sometimes. Uh, there's, you know, breaking news every single day. Something new happening. Uh, more news, statistics, or data. And all of it just really feels unreal. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure. And other film news, good news is Tom Hanks and his wife have been released from the hospital after the coronavirus diagnosis. Uh, so that's also one piece of news I wanted to add in there. So what is your reaction to the latest here that President Trump is now in is really encouraging not only social distancing, but he doesn't think you should even have gatherings of 10 people or more? I think it's a really good start. Um, I think that 
you know, when it comes to, I guess, reacting to this Tom Hanks thing first, it's really good to hear that Tom Hanks is out of the hospital now because I think when celebrities and we hear all these different people becoming infected with the coronavirus, it makes it feel more real. It makes it feel like, you know, these celebrities are just people just like us, and they could also be infected by this just incredibly, uh, this, this is incredible virus, really. And when it comes to Trump's new guidelines, I know that he recently released that he does not recommend um, gatherings of more than 10 people. Uh, I, I mean, I, I have to agree. I think that at this point, um, social distancing and large gatherings are something that we really just have to cancel, things that we have to practice, because we've seen cases like in Italy where uh, you, you have this virus that is just infecting at an exponential rate. And the health system simply cannot uh, cannot sustain it. We've heard this thing called flattening the curve where, you know, we have uh, less people become infected um, so that the health system isn't overwhelmed. And that's when, you know, sadly, practitioners have to decide between, you know, who do we help and who do we not? And that is literally a decision between life and death. So Trump's new guidelines are really exciting to see. Uh, I also know that New York, New Jersey and Connecticut um, recently released their kind of conjoined plan for the coronavirus. Um, I'm not sure if that was just because there was a lack of federal action. I think I remember Murphy possibly saying, but it's really good just to see, you know, our politicians um, really reacting strongly to this virus because we just don't know its capabilities. And if we understate just how infectious it is, it could really be disastrous. Now, speaking of politicians' reactions to it, The president obviously suspended travel to European countries as well as other countries. Well, now some countries are following suit because Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, has said in the last hour that the country is closing its borders to anyone other than Canadian citizens and permanent residents. And this, for now, includes U.S. citizens. Do you think this is an appropriate move by the Canadian Prime Minister, Caleb? I think it is a pretty good move by uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Um, Again, similar to what we've seen in some other countries, uh, other countries that react too late. I think it's good that we're taking these different precautions in Canada and in the U.S. Uh, You've heard from multiple officials, and I believe the director for infectious disease with the CDC, also saying that, you know, a national lockdown of the U.S. is still a possibility. Um, What he means by national lockdown is still yet to be determined, whether that means closing borders uh, establishing a national curfew. These are all things that are pretty scary. They are they are certainly frightening to think about, but it's what's necessary to make sure that people are distancing themselves from one another, making sure that this uh, disease, or excuse me, this virus um, does not spread. And I think that uh, Canada's, you know, taking the necessary steps. Um, they have, you know, a lot of urban areas, but also a lot of areas where there aren't a whole lot of people for a large uh like, I guess, square mileage, really. So I think that they're taking the necessary steps, and I think the U.S. Um, may follow suit as well. Another headline for you, Senator Mitt Romney, who was a Republican and who at one point was a fairly conservative Republican, uh, proposes giving $1,000 to every American adult as coronavirus response uh, is co- continuing on. That's what he thinks we should do. Do you think this is, one, something that should work? And what do you make of the fact that someone of Mitt Romney's stature is now make, proposing such an idea? 
It seems a little strange, I mean, to give $1,000 to those that are infected or just to anybody in general? To every American. To every American. Wow. That literally is, I mean, Andrew Yang's, uh, you know, freedom stipend, I think he called it, where you just give every single American $1,000. Um, I guess you could react to that in a number of ways. One, giving every single American $1,000 to deal with the coronavirus is something that almost sounds like it can be simply solved with, you know, better healthcare system. Um, I think it's kind of nerve wracking that the federal government is reacting a little too slow when it comes to certain tests. Um, even saying like even seeing our president actually kind of downplaying just, you know, how uh, severe and how strict that we need to be for this virus. Um, but to give it every single American a thousand dollars, I think is it's a little it's a little strange um, because I, I think, you know, some people may absolutely need the thousand dollars for food, resources, and, of course, like medical bills if they are sadly infected. But at the same time, I'm sure a lot of people don't need the $1,000 if they're not affected, if they're uh, not infected or affected. Um, So it it just seems kind of strange, but I don't think uh, when it comes to an issue that you could just throw money at something and and say, okay, problem solved. Um, You know, we have a lot of concerns that need to be addressed, and we need to make sure that we're doing this in an efficient manner. Uh, rather than just throwing money at the problem. Yeah, and you definitely make some good points there. And I want to talk a little bit more how this affects the uh, 2020 presidential race. As I announced at the beginning of the segment, Ohio will still have their primary, but there's other places like Georgia and Louisiana who have not. Do you see this race still continuing on there, Caleb? It's It's... Tough to say. Uh, I definitely think that the race is going to be affected, no doubt. People might be scared to leave their homes. Um, I think some people might see the race suddenly as a reason to leave their homes, which can then also affect the spread of the coronavirus. But when it comes to other states um, that have either not had their elections yet or have already postponed or canceled them, it, it seems like they're almost just like lying in wait and trying to figure out what really is the best way to go about this election because of course if you go fully online there's tons of people who might not have access to a computer or may not simply know how to use a computer um and then at the same time if you have people coming out for a physical in-person um vote uh that again brings a lot of people together which is something we definitely don't want to do right now but at the same time that is arguably the most efficient way of voting which is just physical um, you know, being in person and, and casting your ballot. So I think that as much as we're kind of looking at the problem and seeing that the primary is definitely going to be um, affected by coronavirus, I definitely think coronavirus is going to be affected by the primary. So it's kind of a two-way street at the moment, and uh, we'll just have to wait and see um, if uh, turnout results are going to be affected by this virus, really. My final question is, when do you think this is going to end? A lot of people are saying different things, and especially with social distancing, like you and I are literally doing this right now. For those who don't know the layout of the studio, I'm in one room and Caleb is in the other room with the board. Uh, Do you think this is going to help our cause here? And do you think this is going to end quickly? Is it going to take a while? I think that the U.S. is definitely taking steps that other countries did not take before the virus became a pandemic. Um, 
You see in China, in China, there were definitely places and doctors that were silenced by the Chinese government. The Chinese government basically trying to cover it up, saying, oh, nothing's happening. And then when it spread to Italy, uh, it was only a matter of time before, again, the epidemic turned into a pandemic in the country where almost, I think, uh, like a majority of the country is now um, being affected, if not everybody, uh, from the national lockdown. So I think the U.S. is definitely taking precautions that other countries did not take. However, I think that if we're, if we're looking at the timetable in China and in Italy, I would really like to say that this will hopefully, if not be solved, at least controlled and contained by May. Because I know that the coronavirus um, broke out in China, I believe, December 31st, if not early January. Um, and right now we're in March. So I'd like to think that, you know, two months of taking the necessary precautions to prevent the spread of this virus would be what it takes. Of course, I am no expert. And I know Trump has actually said that July or August is when this will be contained. Um, I think the U.S. is actually doing more than China did uh, when China first saw its um you know, patient zero infection. So I would really, I, I would like to say I'm hoping for May. Um, I like to think it's going to be May because truthfully, I think a lot of people don't want their summers to be ruined. A lot of people don't want, you know, their, their jobs, and their lives to be affected for so long. But all we can do is understand that we all have a part in this crisis. And by washing our hands, practicing social distancing, and only, you know, traveling when absolutely necessary, those are the different methods and practices that are going to make sure that this virus is going to be contained as soon as possible. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see how that all plays out. Assistant News Director Caleb Kuberate, thank you so much for coming on. Always a pleasure, Joey Block. Thank you for having me. All right, so that pretty much concludes things for now here. Now I want to have some important PSAs here that the university is open and if you're looking, if you're on campus here still and you need to get food or something like that, uh, their student centers are open, but with certain hours, they're not open on weekends, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. That is the Bush Student Center on the College Ave Student Center and the Bush Student Center. They have Panera, which is open 8 to 4.30. The Schwachen Ishaban is open 11 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. And College Ave Student Center, there's also restaurants there. That is Corito's is open 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. along with King Pita. And Subway and Wednesday, and Wendy's is only open Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then Panera, which is right next door, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And Saturday and Sunday, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Well, thank you so much for joining me here. Thank you so much for listening. And we will be keeping you updated with the latest information. But for now... I'm Joey Block, and coming up, more music programming here on 88.7 WRSU-FM, New Brunswick.